Good evening. The time is 11 p.m. and you're listening to another episode of Nickel and Adams' Pretty Good Radio Show on KVRX Austin, 91.7 FM. We have a really good show for you tonight. Uh, we spoke to Houston Athletic reporter Ali Khan Bijani about the Houston Rockets, the you know James Harden trade, Daryl Morey era, and so much more. That interview is going to be coming up right after this quick intro. Um, and then later, we're going to be discussing um, just pretty much the NBA, maybe some quick tweets. We haven't really planned it out yet, but uh, stay tuned. We have an hour. We're on until 12 p.m. Enjoy. Uh, what's up, guys? We're here with Ali Khan Bajani of the Houston Athletic and NTV Houston. Uh, thanks for joining us, Ali. Yeah, thanks for having me on, guys. So real quick, just wanted to ask, like, I think we were just talking earlier and you said that you went to UT, graduated in 2018, and you uh, were like a pre-med uh, public health major here. Uh, How did you make the transition to go into sports writing? No, I, so I started actually in high school and um, throughout my time at UT, um, I, would, I would spend time whenever there was a Rockets game in um, the library inside Welch Hall. Uh, I'm, I'm not sure if the library still exists in Welch Hall. It may be past y'all's time. I don't think Welch Hall exists anymore. Yeah, Welch Hall's <laughs> kind of dead. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, so there, there, there was a chemistry library there, and it was, it was probably the most – it was probably the best hidden gym on campus because it was always quiet, um, great place to study. So I went there all the time to study for classes. Um, and in the evenings, it would be perfect time to watch a game. Um, and so I would, I would you know, kind of have a timeline of – watching the game and, and doing my homework and then going back to my dorm. I lived on campus as well. Um, so I did that a lot. And um, just from there, I kind of just developed a niche in terms of how I wanted to write. Um, the best advice I ever got in terms of journalism was finding something not only you're passionate about, but what niche you want to go to. Where do you want to find your role within journalism? For me, I really enjoyed strategic, the strategic aspect of basketball, um, the X's and O's. Um, and I, I had initially actually first started because of the 2013 finals between Miami and San Antonio. And I was listening to it on the radio. I was watching a lot of the great YouTube videos that existed from a coaching perspective. I read a lot of books at off season. So for me, the strategic aspect really was intriguing and I fell in love with it. And so I, that's kind of where I am today doing X's and O's and I'm kind of specializing in that in terms of my writing. And it's, and it's been great, you know, um, been able to grow from there. I was the, I was with the Daily Texan uh, for a bit. Um, I went. I was with ESPN here in Houston for a bit. Um, and everywhere I went, I just made sure I, I learned something. I worked on something where I can take those skills and apply it to wherever my next step would be or my next place would be where I would work. Um, and it's been a great journey for me. Um, but you know, I'm still I'm still I have still haven't given up on the <laughs> the public health route actually. Um, yeah 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 so yeah i mean that that's more so off topic than this but you know i'm still i'm still in that uh area of expertise you know i mean so i still work with that yeah oh that's awesome so you know coming out of college uh did you just start you know applying for the athletic or with espn and then started working with the rockets more or did you uh have like a more of a jump initially yeah, no, so I, I was, uh, I was, uh, I used to work in the health professions office at UT. So if any of you pre-meds from UT are listening, yeah, I used to work there. I, I was uh, a peer advisor uh, for a program and 
you know, I remember the day really well. I was at work, um, fifth floor of Painter Hall. I don't know if it's still called Painter yeah, Hall. Yeah, yeah. Uh, just, okay, yeah. So fifth floor of Painter Hall, I was there. And I get a call from the um, one of the chief uh, officers for the athletic. And he's like, hey, you know, we don't have anybody who writes about the Rockets. Um, would you like to, you know, come write uh, about the Rockets? And I jumped at the opportunity. It was, it's a wonderful publication. A lot of people who I look up to from a journalism perspective work there and still work there, and I've had a chance to work with them now. Um, so I took that, took that opportunity. And so my last semester at UT, I, there, were, there were a lot of nights where me and uh, if you follow the Rockets, there's another guy named Kelly Eco who's one of the best mm-hmm. in business. Um, he and I were students at UT together, and so we would drive all the way down to Houston uh, before each playoff, before each home playoff game. Um, and yeah, we did that from the first round, second round, even in the Western wow. Conference Finals. Wow. And then we drove, we drove back that same night. So we would get back to West Campus around 2, 3 a.m. Uh, and stop by in the Kings parking lot uh, and record a podcast or uh, do some writing. So yeah, man, we, we had to make it work. Whenever you are dedicated to something and you're passionate about something, even if it's a hobby like this, you want to give it your all. And you know, we took advantage of all of our opportunities to go, not only go to games, build relationships with um, whether it be journalists, players, coaches, uh, learn as much as we could since we were newbies at that time and take all that we learned and apply it. In the last two years, he and I have been able to cover the team uh, from a full-time perspective, uh, uh, perspective here in Houston. And so, you know, I really do owe a lot to that experience covering those playoffs where I was able to learn what it means to work in that, with, with that type of team uh, work with that type of um, constant movement. And, and a, like, with the playoff team, it's always constant moving. The right. cycle is always changing. You, you have to be uh, very, very um, open to change and um, very much ready for any sort of adaptation you have to make. And so, I, you know, it, it was a really good opportunity, and I'm glad I got on when I did because now it's very easy for me to adjust um, and be able to – the NBA is always constantly changing. That's one thing I've definitely learned. Is yeah, we know. Only, yeah. <laughs> only, yeah. I mean, as fans, you know, there, there's a lot of moving parts you see. But even in terms from a journalism and journalist perspective, there's a lot going on. And you have to be able to take that. you have any um, examples it, of that? Um, I think one thing for me that was really interesting was – the trade for Russell Westbrook. Mm. And so I had, I had an idea that something was happening with that um, a little bit before the trade occurred. Um, it was told that uh, James had gone and talked to them about, Hey, you know, he, he would, he, he wouldn't mind, you know, playing with Russ. Um, and I reported that at the time, whenever the trade happened, but I had knew, I knew this was going to happen, but like a dummy, I took, that second or third, I don't know, the second week, it was July 11th. So that second week of July, and I, mm-hmm. I was taking a few days off. And right when I decided to take those few days off, all of a sudden, trade happens, and all these things escalate, and all uh, these things are going on. And so you really don't have a day off in basketball. Maybe the only time you have a day off is in August. But even then, there's moves constantly being made. <laughs> there's stories that you can constantly do. Um, so there's a lot to it, man. It's like it's, it's constantly revolving. Um, and the, the Rockets are one organization, especially when Daryl Morey was in charge. Yeah, they're always involved in everything. And so you have to make sure you're on your toes and, and ready for any sort of news to drop at any time. So that's what we wanted to go into uh, right after this was uh, Daryl Morey's career. I mean, I started watching the Rocket, Rockets maybe around like 2010, 2011. And uh-huh. pretty much my entire time, like following this team, Daryl Morey was the general manager. Um, you saw that 
and I guess like as a Rockets fan, I was just always used to like trades happening, players moving in and out. He was there for 14 years. Um, we never had a losing like season. We made the playoffs most of the time. So I think that, like even though we didn't come away with a title, I think that we've been sort of spoiled in just always being a competitive team. Um, what's your take on like the Daryl Morey situation? Like, how do you think that his uh, tenure factors in with the rest of the NBA? I think he's going to go down as one of the most successful GMs. Um, albeit you need to win a championship for that, and he hasn't won a championship as a GM. But I do think he's one of the best um, GMs in the league, if not the best GM in the league. He does a great job of putting his star players in positions to be successful, surrounding them with great talent. Um, I think in terms of the circumstances he was given here in Houston, the players he was given, the situation he was given, he did a great job of kind of optimizing around James Harden. He let James Harden flourish. He surrounded with James Harden, not only with the players, but with the coaching staff. Whatever's necessary, whatever resources he needed, he gave it to him. Um, and, and I think that's what really is going to be a big takeaway for me is that his teams were always competitive. He never settled. He never tanked. He always put his team in position to contend, at least for a playoff spot. Um, and that's, that's honorable. That's noble. Um, I think the biggest thing for me is that you see around the NBA and it's, you know, Daryl is going to be known for small ball because it's about what you did for me recently, what you did lately. Mm -hmm. But I think one thing that Daryl should be known for is the Lake. Let's, let's take the Lakers, for example, this year, the Lakers won the NBA title by going big when other teams play predominantly small, even if they started a center, they played, uh, they played predominantly small. The Lakers stayed big and they had Anthony Davis at the five to counter those small ball lineups. Now, that's what they're good at, and they went all in on what they're good at, being an athletic, defensive team. Not being a very good half-court team, if you watch the Lakers in the playoffs, yeah, they're, 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 just they're good in transition. Yeah. And so, so they, but they went all in on that, right? That's what the Rockets, believe it or not, did these last few years. Yes, you know, they played, a small, they played a, as a small team. Yes, they switched everything. But there's a reason why they're good at it. And in the league, the way the league is, the way the league is set up today, you have teams that are with superstar players. And what the superstar players want to do, that's what your team is going to do. If you superstar players prefer and like to switch on defense, well, your defensive scheme will be predicated on switching. And the Rockets were really good at that. You have one of the best post defenders in the league, if not the best, actually. And James Harden. If that's <laughs> just, <laughs> no, you're right. You're, I mean, you're, you're right. You're right. It's just, yeah, it, it's too, so yeah. it's just yeah. so funny to like say say out loud. Yeah. Um, but you know, like, <laughs> so Adam Adam here, he's a uh, Dallas Mavericks fan from Dallas. Yep. Uh, and I just want to ask you, what is your biggest like criticism of the Rockets? And I just want to see y'all like kind of. My biggest criticism is the fact that they don't really take mid-range shots because I believe I, I heard Kevin Durant say it too. That's a shooter spot is a shooter spot, even if it's not necessarily statistically the best shot. And mm -hmm. just seeing the game being played that way, that was always my biggest critique of Houston. Uh, I do feel like it's a copycat league though, and you can kind of see teams start to follow. But I think definitely my biggest critique was. They had a similar play style to the Warriors, but the Warriors did take mid-range shots, whereas Houston was really into that three and layup only type of offense, just the highest percentage shots. You know, if you go back and watch the Lakers, 
Yes, they had the mid-range shots a little bit. But if you watch the Lakers in the playoffs and the finals yeah. throughout, throughout the time, what kind of shots were they looking for? Dunks or yeah. threes. You know I mean? So you're right. It's a copycat league, and you're right about the mid-range. But I do think it's kind of blown out of proportion with Houston um, and that, you know, they don't take anything. I think there are times when James should look for the mid-range shot. I agree with that, um, you know, that argument that, you know, there are times where teams are playing drop coverage. And if you're playing drop coverage when the big is all the way at the rim mm -hmm. and the guy is going over the screen, you have a pull-up mid-range jumper. And we've seen that throughout his career, especially early on in Houston. James yeah. is automatic from that spot. He shot – 48 to 50% from that spot for about three consecutive years yeah, from 2013 to 2015. Yeah. So you know, he's, he's clearly good at that. He can do it. I yeah. think ultimately as his career has evolved, as he has evolved as a player, he's gotten so much into um, this role of being like a lab experiment and kind of embracing that role. And he's so good at it. I think ultimately you have to look at his percentages. His step back three percentage right now is equivalent or is actually higher than what a two point percentage would be from the mid-range spot for equal points. And so with that in mind and how deflating it is, if you're a defender or a defense overall to see him hit a step back three, I would go with the step back three. Now that, that just may be me thinking about the math and thinking about all these things. But when you're playing, what is more deflating to you? A tough contested step back three or a pull up two, something that the yeah. defense is allowing you to take, right? Yeah. So he's, he's thinking of different counters. And I think for him, he's, He's the best offensive player in the NBA for a reason because he's able to have all these different counters. Now, you know, Luka is getting there, and you're a Mavericks fan. And I will say yeah. this, though, that do not be surprised if that offense takes more of a Houston type of I mean, turn. I think they're already kind of leaning towards that. I think they'll go big with it, but I think they're already, like, looking at very similar. I mean, James Harden and Luka have such a similar game. You have Luka's yeah. step-back three. He's such a good facilitator. Um, one thing I did want to ask you, though, and this goes back to Daryl Morey, is the kind of the context of the James Harden trade back when we acquired him from OKC. Where do you think that goes down in, like, the pantheon of GM trades in NBA history? Oh, man, I feel like there's a lot of really good trades that have happened. I, I would have to sit down and actually think about that. Mm -hmm. But in terms of changing an organization, um, I think that has to go up there. It's one of the best of all time. Think about it. The Rockets, were, the Rockets were struggling with Yao and Tracy with their injuries. They yeah. come off two straight years of being the ninth seed. I mean, I, I mean, I grew up, like you said, you started watching Rockets basketball in 2010. I started watching Rockets basketball around that time, too. Yeah. Um, and I was a big fan of Chuck Hayes, um, you know, Carl Landry. Back when we had Drogic. Um, <laughs> Drogic, Lowry together. Lowry, yeah. Those were fun teams, man. Yeah. And, 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 but that being said, you take those guys and you cash in and you get a bona fide superstar, a, an icon in the NBA, and to change your franchise, not only from an on-court product, from, or, but also an off-court product, I mean, that has to go down in the pantheon of one of the best GM trades what, to ever happen. What, what do you think that Daryl Morey saw in James Harden from his OKC time that made him think that he could be a superstar? Or do you think that he even saw that James Harden would be a superstar and they just, just lucked out? They got lucky. I mean, he's talked about it too. He, he knew he could be good. He knew he could be a really good player, really good star in this league. But he's blown his proportions, right? And, and I, I think that's very true. You know, there's something that the Rockets do for a lot of players. And they – before the draft, they like to have um, 
there, there's like a talk amongst like scouting circles that the Rockets like to look at players, not just as players, about what they can do from a skill set perspective, but also from a uh, statistical uh, projection perspective. And there's certain players who favor really well statistically. For example, Montrez Harrell was a great statistical projection in, in, in the draft. He didn't go into the second round, but the Rockets loved him. A lot of teams loved him statistically. Look at him now. De'Anthony Melton, who's going to become a great player for the Memphis Grizzlies. He was a statistical darling for the Grizzlies. Look at him now. He's kind of grown into that role. Mm-hmm. So the Rockets saw that same statistical um, dominance from James. And when they made that move for him, you can tell, at least from the statistics, that he could progress into a great player. And he definitely has. He's one of the best shooting guards to ever play. Um, and so I, I think from that perspective, the Rockets knew what was going to happen. Uh, sorry, the Rockets figured something would happen, but I don't think they could, to this extent, you know, think that, hey, he's going to be one of the best players to ever play this game from an offensive standpoint, or he's going to be a guy who is going to be in the consideration for multiple MVPs or could, you know, have easily won multiple MVPs as well. So, you know, he definitely, I, I think he that he's blown he their proportions. <laughs> I think he should have won more, to be I honest. I think he should have won the one that he won. He should have won over Westbrook. I, 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 I still think he should have won over Westbrook. I agree, here. honestly. Yeah, but that's here or there. Um, I, I, I will say this, though. That 2014-2015 season yeah. when Steph won, yeah. that James Harden season, if you go back and watch him play, right there. that may have one of his best. So he averaged a lot of assists. Uh, two, three seasons after that. Mm-hmm. But in terms of his passing, that may have been one of the best passing seasons I've seen. From and who was his supporting cast that year? Who was is, who is surrounded, surrounding him? Like, was it Chandler Parsons? Chandler Parsons, I think Ryan Anderson. Like, it was not a... No, no, no. This, was this the Dwight is, Howard team? This is a Dwight Howard team. This okay, is the okay. one that went to the, West, the Western Conference mm, Finals. Right, oh, yeah. right. Yeah. I, I, I remember, like, arguing so hard that James Harden should have won MVP that year. And I think, like, you just go on regular, like, NBA Reddit or NBA Twitter, and people are like, no, nah, it's like Curry. Like, <laughs> don't even worry about it. But, yeah. Well, in, in your opinion, opinion, we've seen James Harden with a lot of different supporting casts, but who has been your favorite player to see James Harden play with? Oh, man, that's, that's a good question. Uh, I think for me, somebody I really enjoy watching playing, uh, somebody who is – one of the smartest players. And I think if he wasn't playing the NBA, he'd be one of the, he'd be one of the smartest people out there is Chris Paul. Mm. Um, it was just a lot of fun watching him play. Um, just kind of control the offense. It's fantastic. Um, maybe not a star player who I enjoyed watching James play just because their chemistry was fantastic. And I think James really does miss having a, like, a guy like him on the court is Donatus Montiunis. Mm. Now, yeah, the, yeah. The, the, the reason why I say that yeah. is – James runs a lot of pick and roll, or if he doesn't like pick and roll, he likes to go straight into isolation. Now, when Demo was here, uh, that's shorthand for uh, Donatus Montiunis for those listening, um, Demo was very good at dribble handoffs. And James is very good at coming off of dribble handoffs when he has a good big who can also be a great passer. Um, really well on those. Yeah. yeah, and their chemistry was fantastic. There were situations where the pick and pop would work because Demo was starting to shoot threes more. Um, Demo would catch the ball, and he was – such a good passer. He can not only make that short skip pass to the corner, but he can make the cross court pass at the opposite corner or, you know, find Dwight for an alley-oop. I really enjoyed watching that. And I think if James in the rest of his career, if you can find a big, maybe just a four or a, a, a high premium three who can really pass the ball effectively, like a Jeff Green. I mean, we saw that this past playoff. Jeff Green ran the one and five pick and roll or the five one inverted pick and roll with James so many times in that Thunder series. 
because you can rely on another ball handler to take um, the pressure away from James to have him bring, bring the ball up the court. There's a reason why LeBron James wanted Rajon Rondo to play with him in L.A., not just for his IQ and, and veteran presence, but that's another ball handler you can trust to make an entry pass to Anthony Davis, number one, and number two, bring the ball up the floor and not tax LeBron as much throughout the season. I think the Rockets need that, and I think a point of emphasis for them should be to bring back Jeff Green um, as another ball handler to help spell James in the half court. He, de- he definitely looked rejuvenated. <laughs> That's so season. crazy. That's so crazy how – and the Rockets have such a great history of this, taking players kind of off the scrap pile and making them into, you know, people who can play in big minutes in playoff games, such as Jeff Green, who we all thought was going to be kind of washed when he came into the – or at least for the last couple of years. Yeah. Um, so you brought up Chris Paul, and I've had this argument with Adam for a few years now, I guess since, like, the 2017-2018 finals or playoffs where the Rockets were up 3-2 and then they lost Chris Paul and they lost in seven after missing 27 threes in a row. Do you think the Rockets deserve credit for making that far, for being the only team that challenged the Warriors in that run? Or is it all about the wins and they're just going to go and be forgotten? That team's just going to be forgotten. Uh I, think I, I, I can't say yes to either question. I, I, I will say that they deserve a lot of credit because it's one, they're one of the best teams to not win a championship. Reminds me a lot of um, – one of the, I mean, reminds me of other teams that, that never won a championship, right, that were just way too good. Um, the Supersonics in the 90s were a really good team. The Suns with Charles Barkley. I mean, we can – I mean, in the early 2000s, we have so many great teams. I mean, there's just a lot of really good teams that never won a title. Um uh, the Denver Nuggets in 2009 were terrific. I oh, mean, oh yeah. my goodness. Nuggets? <laughs> um, yeah. So, so, I mean, there's just a lot of really good teams that haven't won a title yet, you know, and, yeah. and, and, and for me, for, from that perspective, you know, they're going to go down and, and with that. Now, in terms of their legacy and winning, they had two chances to win game six and game seven. Game six, they were up by 10 at halftime. Game seven, they were up by double digits at halftime. They didn't finish. You know, I really I, – I, I believe, I honestly believe, even though how LeBron was playing, um, how insane he was in that playoff stretch, if the Rockets had won either of those games, they would have won the championship, even with that Chris Paul. I agree. I agree. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> he's a big LeBron you, fan. Yeah, you, I love, I love hey, LeBron. I, I, will, I will say this. I, I watch a lot of LeBron myself. Um, <laughs> uh, I, I, I pretty much watch most of his games. I really enjoy watching him play. Yeah. That being said – that Houston team defensively was fantastic. They had so their rotation defensively was to have at least two of Luke Babamute, who who was borderline one of the best defenders in the defensive league that season. He's a great, like perfect for the league now defender. You could guard. Yeah, but his his shoulders and knees. Yeah, I mean, like too much of a problem. Back in his day, yeah. Yeah. But so they 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 had a rotation of PJ Tucker, Luke Babamute, and Trevor Ariza, and two of those three would be on the court at all times. Now, if you have that on the court and LeBron is seeking matchups, because that's what he did in 2018, which is why he was so aggressive. Yeah. Who are you going to score on? Yeah. Chris Paul's really good on the ball, especially that season. James Harden was terrific defensively. You had, you know, Clint Capella, who was actually pretty decent on switches. I mean, who are you going to, who, who would he have scored on, on isolation? That team was the best defensive team in the league when they went small because of how well they switched and how physical they were. And if you go back and look at the similarities between other teams and the Rockets from that year defensively, 
there's there's a couple concepts the Rockets had that you're defensively they, they by playing physical. They used to guide the switch, and what I mean by that is you would take both your hands, put it on the shoulder of the offensive player, and you would guide them to the other defender. Mm. And that physical that that physicality physicality allowed them to stay in front of the offensive player. Now, if you remember after that season, so before the start of the 2018-2019 season, the NBA, you know, sort of emphasized the freedom of movement rules. Mm -hmm. And why is that? Because not, I mean, the Rockets were one of the biggest culprits of it too, but a lot of teams were way too physical on those switches and they kind of stymied the offense. And because of that, they created those freedom of movement, offensive things. So the Rockets' best chance to win a title was that year. I'm not saying the window is closed, but you have to give credit. That was one of the best defensive teams in the league, um, and I, I think they do, they do deserve credit. So what do you think about the playoff performance this year? Um, we won against OKC in seven games, and I don't think that any Rockets fan wanted to be in a <laughs> seven-game series against the Thunder this year. And then we essentially fell apart with the Lakers uh, after winning game one. And I remember I was really hyped after winning game one. I was uh, telling was. Lakers fans to worry or to watch Lakers. out. <laughs> yeah, I, I watched. And then I watched all the rest of the games with Adam, who was rooting for LeBron the entire time, uh, despite being a Dallas fan. And he had to leave at halftime for every game so he wouldn't get too upset. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but this, this playoff run, yeah, please tell me your thoughts on this. Man, um, I think – you're seeing that you need to surround James with certain types of players. Um, and Russ clearly was not back to 100% after his injury. You know, people forget that he had COVID-19, and it really, I think, that combined with his injury, I don't think he was 100%. He was still as energetic and hardworking and, you know, fierce as he was on the court. I just don't know if he developed that same set, set of rhythm that he had early in the season when after they made the trade, and when Clint was out with plantar fasciitis, he was doing an incredible That's job of attacking the paint mercilessly. Yeah. Um, and, and so for me, I really do think that this team can be successful. And I don't think that, that, that playoffs was a good example of how they can play well together. Eric, I think the biggest you know, thing for me was Eric Gordon's injury really hurt them. I'm not going to say in the playoffs. I'm going to say it hurt them in the regular season. I think in the playoffs, his shooting took a little bit, uh, took a little bit of time to come back. But he was great defensively. And I don't think anybody can knock him for how hard and how well he played. He was their best perimeter defender, along with P.J. Tucker in the playoffs. He did a sensational job on LeBron James. Um, for his size, he really did a great job kind of staying in front. With LeBron, there's different methods of kind of playing him defensively. I think Eric was quick. He kind of just stayed in front enough where – if you're going to double-team LeBron, he's going to find an open shooter. And so if you have a guy like Quick, like Eric Gordon, who can stay well in front of him laterally, you don't have to bring a double-team as quick as you normally would, and you don't have to help off a shooter as early as you normally would. So that allows your defense to be set for a longer period of time. And I think Eric allowed them to do that. So all this talk about him getting traded or whatever, uh, not sure. But if he does get traded, I think that would be a very big detriment to this defense. Oh, yeah. Uh, so you, we talked a little bit about Westbrook, and I just wanted to ask, do you know if Daryl Morey wanted to make that Westbrook trade? Because it seemed so uh, out of, like, character compared to, like, whatever else, whatever trades he's made in the past. Westbrook, I mean, analytically, he's not great. Um, 
he can't shoot or at least hasn't been able to shoot for the last couple of years. And that's not to take away from him being, you know, an incredible player, but I just wanted to know, like, does, did Daryl Morey, like, was he fully on board with that trade? I, I don't think the Rockets would have made the trade if Daryl wasn't on board. Yeah. So, and, and I think Daryl did a great job of kind of going all in on this team. Um, Russ was great this season. And I think he, once they made the trade and once Clint had the plantar fasciitis and allowed him to shine and go to the paint, he was great. I think Chris Paul equally was fantastic. And credit Chris for changing his diet, kind of changing the way he worked out and, you know, playing with the chip on his shoulder to make sure everybody still knows he's one of the best point guards in the NBA and he's still one of the best players in the NBA. Um, and so credit to both those guys. I think, honestly, um, for what happened, um, it may not have been a win in terms of trade-wise for the Rockets because they did have to give up a few assets. But ultimately, when you're looking at the way you wanted to play offensively, you have to be happy with where you're at. You surrounded Russ with a small ball lineup where he can just attack, go downhill and drive. You surrounded James with another playmaker who can take the load off of him offensively once he's in a rhythm. Um, and then you have Eric Gordon and other guys who can complement those players and you can still play your switching scheme. So ultimately, I think that Daryl was thinking about all these things when he made the trade. And I really don't think he, would, he wouldn't have made it if he wasn't you know, on board with it. So Chris Paul, like clearly just going to OKC definitely increased his uh, valuation in the league. Do you think the same happened with Westbrook just after what he showed this season? That's, that's a very tough question. I, I, I think that ultimately, no matter where you go, it depends on fit, right? Mm-hmm. And with mm-hmm. Russ, I really don't see where else there's a better fit for him right now than Houston. Houston has gone all in to make him feel comfortable and make him feel like he's a big part of the offense because you traded away a center to create more space. I mean, who else is going to do that in the league? Um, That being said, who knows? I don't think, and at least from what I've heard, there shouldn't be any trades happening with Russ or James. Um, And I think they're still fully committed to that pairing. Um, They should be. They did a great job whenever they were on that stretch last year. They clearly showed their potential. Um, even defensively, they were still, they were playing really well. Um, but, you know, they, they have a shot. They still have their window open. I don't think their window's closed yet. I know the Lakers are still a juggernaut. But the Rockets have James Harden and Russell Westbrook. As long as you still have those two players, as long as you have two superstars like that, any team with two superstars, you give yourself a chance to get hot at the right time, play with a good rhythm, play with good chemistry as a team, and get there. It's not just about them. It's about the role players you surround themselves with. So Raphael Stone has an important job. Whoever the new head coach is, he has an important job. Put his role players in position to be successful. I do expect some changes, especially offensively, to make it easier. You kind of saw um, the issues that happened when teams, not just a double team, I know there's a whole big story about double teams, but there are other types of defenses that teams threw at James and Russ to make it a lot more difficult on them. And then you're going to see James continue to perfect his floater. And then you're going to see Russ continue to work on his shooting and his passing and his running. think, Think about it. Yes, he had that muscle injury, but this is one of the first few off-seasons in a very long time that Russ hasn't been injured or hasn't had a procedure. Yeah. That's huge for him to be able to have um, time to work out and get his body more crafted towards what he needs to play like with the Rockets. I think this whole hiatus for him before the injury was important. I think you were seeing that he was getting much bigger because he knew he was going to play in the paint a lot more. Um, and I think now that you have this extended off-season, it's going to give him some time to recuperate re-engage his body and get to a place where he needs to be so this team can be successful on the court. Well, 
so you mentioned they're all in on their superstars, but where do you think the Rockets go from here with so much turnover and so much change this offseason? Yeah, I, I, I do think that we have to wait and see who the next head coach is. And that's the reason why I think that's important is because it's really going to get us to understand what the vision and philosophy is. What's the shortlist? Not just for, I think the real uh, question is, who do you want to see and what's the shortlist? <laughs> so I, I, I think in terms of the coaches who you guys have been hearing about, the John Lucases, the Jeff Van Gundys, the Steven Silas, um, you, know, say, uh, the, you know, those guys have made a good, you know, uh, pitch to the Rockets in their interviews. Jeff Van Gundy, I think people talk a lot about his last, last time he coached was – and the NBA was in, 2000s, uh, in late 2000s with the Rockets. I will say, though, that he did coach Team USA's qualifying team. And if you talk to any of those players, they speak so very highly of him and what he did. If you go back and watch those games or just kind of look at the way he coaches, he coaches as somebody who's not going to just give you what you want because you're a star or you're a good player. He's going to make your team – sacrifice for each other and root for each other and respect each other. And I think that's a sort of quality that is important in today's NBA. When you have players who deservedly, you know, are getting the power and recognition they should. Um, that being said, you need to have a coach who's good with those personalities who can not only empower them on the court, but empower them off the court to be great leaders. I think Jeff is somebody who I think would be good in that role, especially with John Lucas. John Lucas is one of the best people in the NBA um, I've gotten a chance to know him with my time covering the team. I think he's a phenomenal person. Um, I mean, who knows? It's been a while since he's coached as well, but he has a great relationship with all the players, especially with James and Russ. Mm-hmm. Um, I think he, I mean, you know, I think he, 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 he'd know what to do. He knows these players. He'd know uh, what to do to kind of make them go. Um, Steven Silas, I think, you know, he did a, he's done a terrific job. He was a finalist. People forget in 2016 before the Mike D'Antoni hire because he's smart. He has a vision. He's a very good, he's a basketball lifer. There's not a lot of basketball lifers out there. And when you're a basketball lifer, players respect the hell out of you because they know that your, your whole life, everything you do revolves around the game. And that's how players really relate to each other. Um, and he's smart. He, he, he should get a lot of credit. Rick Carlisle is an offensive genius. I think Rick Carlisle is one of the top three coaches in the league, but Steven Silas deserves as much recognition for that offense taking off the way it has. Um, and the way the Rockets are playing now and the way they want to play, I think a guy like that to help your offense, not only in the James Harden era, but possibly beyond having a young coach like that in the reins, that would be a great hire as well. So I think no matter where they go, there are pros and cons here. But I think all three would be in a terrific position to lead this team, at least for the next few years. Um, so one question I had was, and you might not know the answer to this, but what is like the conversation that goes on kind of behind, you know, between the GM and the potential head coach? Like what kind of questions are they asking? How do they differentiate between who is, who they might want to hire? So that, that's a really good question. I, I don't know a lot to, that I would be able to share. Um, but I will say that there has to be an alignment with the philosophy. Um, that's incredibly important with coaches and GMs, especially with Houston. The Rockets know how they want to play. The Rockets know the kind of roster they have. They want the coach to come in and say, hey, if we give you these tools or these assets, how would you make it work on the court? And, and in turn, the Rockets organization learns a lot from these interviews. I'll give you guys an example, not from, a coach, from coaching, but just overall in terms of player development. When they bring in draft players, they bring in top-level draft picks. 
if you go back throughout the Rockets and General Moore's history, he's brought in top five, ten draft picks for workouts at Toyota Center. Not because they think they're going to draft him, but more importantly, overall throughout their careers, this meeting with them is going to provide them a lot of information they need for the future, um, whether it be playing against them or whether it be recruiting in free agency. Just that first relationship with them during the draft process is incredibly important once you get that information. The Rockets are very much like that. They like to hear a lot of different perspectives and then find what they think is best for their team moving forward. So they are very proactive in that regard, even before Tillman Partita. Do you think we're going to pick up a center or at least someone who can space the floor as a center? I think that would be ideal. Uh, <laughs> I think they're probably going to be in the market to look, see if they can find a good serviceable backup big for them. Maybe Miles um, at least. Maybe huh? Turner and Nerlens Noel. Nerlens Noel would be really good here. Miles, I don't think he's going to leave Indiana. I think no. he. I, I, I think if you are the Pacers, that would be. That would not be a smart decision. I think Miles Turner is great. Uh, it depends on what happens with the Little Depot, obviously. Can they afford uh, but, him and Sabonis, though? Like, together, at least. Not afford, but, like, can they make it work with those two together? Yes. And I'm a very big proponent of two bigs. I was a very big – I was very high on the Memphis Grizzlies in the late 2000s and early 2010s. That was one of my favorite teams to watch. Grind, yeah. And when you have two – yeah. And, and I think when you have two bigs like that – I mean, look, let's look at the Lakers. Like, I, I'm, not trying to, I'm not trying to push the fact that, oh, bigs win championships, which they have done. I'm trying to push the fact that you play the way you want to play the best way you play and you make other teams have to adjust to you. And if you play with that type of mindset, you can be successful. The Lakers never adapted to any other team except in times when they had to go small early on, but they never adjusted. They kept their players. They played who they needed to play. They surrounded their superstars with guys who complimented them. Well, no matter which team you are, Miami, Indiana, whatever these teams that have a great nucleus, you just play what you play, but you play at a higher level. And if you can do that, you give your teams a really good shot to be successful. Okay. Um, I don't want to get you in trouble with this next question, but I really have to know, as a Houston hater, uh, Daniel House, does he come back after the bubble? Is he, is he back on the team? Man. <laughs> <laughs> that's all you, you got to say. If that's all you have to say. <laughs> I don't know. I'm gonna. I'm gonna. I'm gonna. I'm gonna say I don't know. I actually. I truly don't know the answer to that. Do you think that it definitely? And I think James Harden came out and said this, where that incident really hurt their chemistry. Um, and do you think that that relationship relationship is repairable? I mean, we can see that in the NBA all the time when you have even in the Utah Jazz, yeah. yeah, where Rudy Gobert and Donovan Mitchell had a bit of a rocky relationship, but at the end of the day, they still had to play together. Uh, do you think that, you know, that same kind of treatment can go with Daniel House despite being more of a role player? Yeah, I mean, James is a hooper. And, and James and Daniel actually were really close. Um, and throughout Daniel's time and with the Rockets, he, he's really looked up to James. He's taken on James's kind of work ethic. A lot of young players actually look up to James's work ethic. So I don't think that would be a, much of an issue in terms of them playing together. Okay. Um, I know we have a couple minutes left. In your opinion, what does the NBA look like this upcoming season? I know none of us really know, but if you had to make a guess, uh, do you think they're going to be trying to push for Christmas MLK, or they're going to try to wait for a vaccine to come out in a you know few months and try to push? No, that, that's that's a fantastic question. And at least from a public health perspective, and mainly from an economic perspective, they want fans back in the stands, yeah. and they're constantly 
talking to owners, talking to public health professionals, talking to anybody who can provide them with a good idea of what it would take for fans to come back in the stands. Because think about how much money, not just the NBA, but the MLB and the NFL have lost because there have been no fans in the stands, right? And so you have to make sure that you do everything you can before the start of next season to do that. Even if it means a smaller capacity, but having concessions, if it, you know, whatever it takes for your team to be able to generate revenue. Um, and so with that, whenever that happens, I think that's when you start seeing from, from a public health perspective. And I, I guess I am talking to a public health major here, yeah. um, indoor versus outdoor. We see the NFL uh, having, you know, fans in the stands, but I think they've mitigated that just because they're saying that it's an outdoor sport. Uh, the fans are outdoors, but with the are, NBA, are you suggesting outdoor games, like, kind of <laughs> yeah. like the the Rock of Park? Oh yeah, yeah, P, uh, pick up basketball. Yeah. 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 Um, <laughs> what, what do you think? I, I I don't necessarily see that happening, but I will say <laughs> <laughs> I will say though I think that the NBA has learned a lot from this bubble experience, and one thing I really take away from this bubble experience is the fact that the lack of travel bettered the product. Yeah. And the, the less travel and less wear and tear you have from travel on an NBA body, the better the games will be. And I think there's a lot of different things you can take away from that and also how the court looked like without fans, possibly expanding um, the space between the court and fans. Um, players were a lot more willing to dive on the floor for loose balls. Players were a lot more aggressive kind of, you know, fighting for all those things. Um, I, I really do think that um, they did learn a lot, especially the concept of, hey, Let's reduce travel so we can have a better product in the postseason, especially. Yeah. Uh, okay. Well, I think that that's our time. Uh, thank you, Ali, so much for coming on the show. Uh, you can read his stuff on The Athletic and watch him on MTV Houston. Uh, thanks again, man. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, thanks for having me on.